Roombas are replacing housekeepers, computer screens are replacing cashiers, and you can pretty much print any household item you want, including a house itself. My name is Tom, and on the podcast today, we ask, how would you know a robot won't take my job? Hello and welcome to the first episode of a new series produced by the University of Southern Queensland. Throughout this series, I am going to be sitting down with industry experts and discussing topics relevant to you, your studies and your career and asking, how would you know? Before we get started, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of these lands, the Yagara, Yugara and Yugarabal people of Ipswich and Springfield, where this podcast is recorded as keepers of ancient knowledge and whose cultures and customs continue to nurture this land. I also pay respect to elders, past, present, and future. Today's podcast is about whether or not robots will take our jobs, but my guest for this podcast is the antithesis of a robot. Welcome to the studio, Carolyn Allerton from Career Motivate and also on the board for uh, Career Development Association of Australia. Lovely to be discussed as the antithesis of a robot. Some things I wish I could be more robotic about, organisation and things like that would be good. Perhaps we'll play to your strongest strengths to, uh, <laughs> on the podcast today. Thank um, you. Now, Carolyn, let me paint you a picture. You're on a Royal Caribbean cruise ship three days into a dream holiday. You want a tropical drink to enjoy at the top deck, as you do. So do you go to the closest bar staff you know? No. You select an item on an iPod and uh, two robotic arms begin to mix your ingredients with much more precision but much less charm than your typical human bartender. Carolyn, it appears as though even a profession as previously human-centric as bartending is not immune to automation. How real is the danger of everyone losing their jobs and is anyone safe? <laughs> yes, people are safe. First up, that's the most important thing. Um, many of the statistics that are shared around job loss over the next 20 to 40 years in actual fact, relate to elements of a job rather than the whole job itself. So if we were to, for example, discuss something like uh, nursing, um, obviously technology is used repeatedly in different ways inside nursing and more technology is being used. However, being a nurse isn't going to disappear, but the jobs that a nurse does, the way that a nurse completes those jobs, etc., etc they will change. So what would be necessary is to, if you imagine a, a, a job or a role as a piece of bread, we need to granulate that piece of bread in order to find the elements that will be automated or adapt to change over time. And the other thing is I think that there's a lot of scaring and, and a lot of fear around this, but uh, roles and jobs and careers have been changing since you know, since Bam Bam and Pebbles and, and clubbing people over the head existed back in those times. So we've come a very, very long way and we are still very much developing at a faster pace these days, I admit. Mm, I love the analogy of a uh, piece of bread there. Um, <laughs> and I look forward to many gluten-free jobs coming up <laughs> in the near future. As a celiac, I can understand that. <laughs> um, now, an, an extract from the 2017 Deloitte Review claims that human and machine intelligence are different in complementary rather than conflicting ways. And I guess you've kind of alluded to that uh, a little bit just now. So I guess... Can automation create rather than destroy jobs? And if so, what sort of jobs will those be? Well, it's interesting when we're when we're considering how automation can create jobs. I think that the the uh, diabolical number of uh, tech roles that are currently being hired for in general society is obvious. I also think that when we consider the fact that 
uh, as a society, we have become obsessed with big data. There are more statistical reports coming out than you can poke a stick at. Interestingly enough, we're also collecting huge amounts of data. When we're thinking about um, the jobs that can exist, often it's not about uh, understanding um, what the data is because now we've got algorithms and automation. But now it's much more strategic. How can we use the data? How can this improve a client or a customer experience? How can this make us efficiencies within the market? How can this uh, add value to a, a, a an at-risk community. It's how we use the data and strategize for success in the future rather than necessarily, say, a traditional accounting role, which now that bookkeeping can be done through automation. Right. So I guess, would you say there's a more surface-level understanding? I I know a few years ago we had an instance in the news where there was um, big talk about big data and then metadata and uh, potentially a little bit of public confusion. Uh, Has that changed over the last couple of years? Are we now, I guess, getting to the stage where people understand things like that? I think the practical realities uh, are helping general society understand how data is used. So, for example... Um, and I'm not sure how I feel about this ethically, but Woolworths uh, sends me an email when I need milk. How Woolworths knows that is because of the way that I shop. Uh, the purpose of big data, I think, is being becoming more easily understood. Uh, the safety of data, the ethics around data, all of the above, I think, is, is another area of growth in relation to jobs and understanding how we should use a person's information, the ways that we use that information, and how long that information can be stored for. When we look at, say, accounting that I was talking about before, you've got uh, a traditional accounting role, which historically we might have said, oh, you know, if, you, if you're really great with numbers and you like working independently and you're not necessarily a big fan of working with people that much, maybe this could be great for you, is no longer the case. An accountant's job now uh, has a lot more to do with getting along with um, clients, helping them to understand how to unpack the data for their own purposes. Right. Yeah. Well, I guess that leads well into my next question because I'm sort of talking a little bit around uh, some labor intensive work and how algorithms and data is helping to automate that. Um, an example of that, another one being uh, Ross, the first paralegal robot. <laughs> Why has Ross got such a, um, a nerdy name? Not that it, I, I just think of friends, it's full I, of. I apologise to all the Rosses <laughs> listening to the podcast Ross, right Ross, now. Ross, I'm sure you're a lovely person. <laughs> I, I, I promise you are. It's, it's absolute. But uh, I, I guess speaking to Rosses and then everyone else who is potentially uh, worried about that automation in their particular industry, whether they're a, a paralegal or an accountant or anything else, could you shed some light on some employability skills and what skills would be most important for employees in the future? When we're thinking about skills for employees in the future, a range of different reports have come out over the last couple of years talking about those kind of skills. And they frame them in a lot of different ways. So you've got things like employability skills, but in different reports they might be defined as soft skills or transferable work skills or future skills for the world of work. There's so many different ways. So when we're thinking about what skills exist in that space, there's a lot of um, alignment. So skills for the future include innovation and creativity, flexibility and adaptability, strong communication and collaboration skills, cultural competency, 
And I'm also going to add digital literacy to that. Mm. So when I discuss cultural competency, um, from a political point of view, I work at a university. So as you can imagine, I'm not... um, anti-cultural collaboration. The opposite is true. When we're thinking about cultural competency, it's not only the ability to work across different cultures, but different genders, different age groups, being able to work with a diversity of people to meet specific goals and attain certain things in a a collaborative and accepting, non-judgmental way. To throw a spanner in the works there, is that a skill you can you can learn or teach? Oh, definitively. Mm-hmm. And when we're thinking about cultural competency, uh, a lot of the time it's about accepting that you don't know everything. So, for example, if I'm working uh, with a population that I haven't worked with before culturally, uh, top tip, ask. It's not bad to ask because then you know. Uh, another top tip, be respectful of everyone. And I mean, that's a general employability skill, win, lose or draw. If you use your respect and acceptance of the fact that others are different or uh, have different ideas or different thoughts or different belief systems, it will work better. And in a globalised world where we are more and more working across markets, um, whether it be financial, whether it be creative, whether it be technological, we all need to be accepting of different cultures of and styles of work. Sure. Mm. So uh, I'm interested to actually hear your thoughts on, I guess I work in a, a bit of creative industry and we've always kind of seen the world as, you know, there's, there's a creative side and then there's a science side, and you know, art and science. And obviously, um, particularly in marketing, let's say science is becoming a, a big part of that. Um, and so is there still a place in the world for creatives or Woolworths knowing that you need to buy new milk? Is that kind of replacing that? Well, I think that there is still a place for creativity because when we look at innovation, that is where uh, the jobs are and that's where the money is. And when I say that, um, it sounds quite cold, but if you think about the innovations that have occurred over the last few years, uh, Instagram, you know, was developed within a six-week period by a group of five people and then sold for at least a billion um, I couldn't give you an exact figure. But m- my point is, is that I think that artistic people, and when I say artistic, I am talking creatives. Um, I think music is a perfect example. Have the skills far more than many other industries because we are now moving into a casualised world. When I say casualised, what I mean is a gig economy. A lot of people think that a gig economy is something to do with technology. It is not. Don't get me wrong, technology has a part to it, but it's not about gigs and megabytes. A gig economy is just like being a musician, where a musician goes around and gets gigs at different places. In our casualised world now, we need to be employable ourselves by knowing that our skills are wanted within industry. So from a creativity point of view... I think that um, that is absolutely key because if you can bring and add value to an organisation in a way that somebody else hasn't before, you have a unique sales point. And particularly in marketing, that is key to success. 
Perfect. Well, I'll be taking a couple of roadies with me on the road and <laughs> trying out that one. Um, and finally, I just want to touch on what you mentioned before around digital literacy. Do you want to touch on maybe that? And I, I guess my big question is with uh, so much happening in technology now, should every student, should every employee be upskilling in coding and everything else? Or, or, or is that just a little bit maybe overkill? Well, I think it's uh, I think it's great that uh, it is becoming more general inside education to learn the uh, practical skills around digital literacy. A lot of people would assume that digital literacy was understanding how to use email or Word or, or, or an Office suite or an Excel spreadsheet. Um, but if we think about digital literacy similarly to normal literacy, that would be like understanding the letter A, the letter B, the letter C. When we consider really strong digital literacy, it's not about the tools we use, but the problems that we solve. And utilising um, digital tools and software and hardware to actually secure a solution to a problem. So good digital literacy is being able to compile something using digitised resources to solve an issue or a problem. So algorithms for a marketing campaign knowing how to use that to create an answer that will produce a solution rather than understanding how to code it out in the first place. Coding's one part of it. And some people are brilliant at programming and other people are brilliant at strategy and so the way the world goes. So more process, yes, is necessary, but I think strategically it's about understanding how you can use the tools to find solutions. Fantastic. We can all live in harmony cohesively forever. <laughs> a utopian reality. <laughs> what a positive way to end the episode. Um, <laughs> thanks very much for joining us in the uh, the first episode of How Would You Know as our expert. And um, where can we find out more about uh, Career Motivate as well as the CDAA? Well, uh, just jump on the net and if you do a Google search for cdaa.org.au and uh, if you jump on my LinkedIn profile, you'll hear all about Career Motivate and consultation services, etc. That's Carolyn Alchin. You can check her out on <laughs> LinkedIn. She won't mind. Thanks, Tom. Thank you very much for joining us. Well, I've made it through an entire show without being replaced and on the assumption there's not a robot in my seat in the near future, we've got some great episodes coming soon. Addressing topics like whether your GPA matters after uni and whether social media can help you raise your child. You can find these as well as a plethora of great career development content and advice on USQ's social hub. That's social.usq.edu.au. Until next time, my name is Tom and will a robot take your job? Now you know.